Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in hand and open to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, our text today. And we are in the midst of a three-part series called The Cross of Christ. This time of year, our hearts and minds typically turn towards the cross. Uh, we are looking at uh, Holy Week coming up, and I hope you'll make plans to be here Good Friday. And of course, next Sunday morning is, is Easter Sunday morning. The title of the message today is We Still Need the Cross. Now, last week, we saw that Jesus told his inner circle of disciples in Mark chapter 8 that they had to take up their cross daily to follow him. And that's true not only of the inner circle, that's true of every would-be follower of Christ. And then on Easter Sunday, we're going to look at the power of the cross. Now, I often think of the first theology class that I ever took. I was serving as a bivocational pastor in a rural church in northern Mississippi, During the week, I was a public high school coach, and on Sundays, I preached to about 40 souls. And fortunately, New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary had opened an extension branch in First Baptist Church of Clinton, Mississippi, just outside of Jackson. And they offered classes on Monday only. Every Monday, they flew up a couple of their campus professors, and they started class at 8 in the morning, and it went to 8 in the evening. And so if you enrolled, you took whatever they offered that semester. And the principal that had hired me to coach the baseball team was a deacon in his local church, and he gave me every Monday off to go to seminary. The class that was offered my first semester was Systematic Theology 4. Now, never mind that I had not had Systematic Theology 1 through 3. (laughs) This is what they offered, so this is what I took. The subject that semester in Theology 4 was the atonement, specifically soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. And we focused on the various views of the atonement. And from that point on, the doctrine of atonement has been near and dear to my heart. In fact, the word atonement literally means to cover. And when we think of Christ's atonement, he covered our sin guilt. It really is how God brought about reconciliation between himself a holy God, and sinners like us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. One of the highlights of my time here at First Baptist Keller was a conference that we had here on the doctrine of the atonement. And I still get cards and emails from people who are blessed by what our speakers taught that week. You might remember that there are numerous orthodox views of the atonement, the implications of it, and the nuances of it. I'll just summarize a few of the most popular for you just to jog our memory. One popular theory was the moral influence theory. It's the idea that Jesus died on the cross to bring about positive change in society and culture. The world was in a mess and it needed a hero. Another view is the ransom theory, that that Jesus died to pay a debt. Now, people disagreed on who the debt was owed to. Many in, in the ancient world said Satan. A third view is Christus Victor. It is the idea that Jesus died to set men and women free from the bondage of their own sin and iniquity. Another is the satisfaction theory. It's the idea that God demands satisfaction or justice because his laws have been violated. 
And then there's the penal substitution view. This is similar to the satisfaction view, but it's set in a courtroom. Humanity is brought before the judge, God, and is guilty of breaking his laws. The punishment is death, but Jesus came into the world to take that punishment on himself for all who would believe. Well, the question is, which is it? Which of those five theories, if any, are correct? Well, the truth is, there is truth in all five of these views. You probably recognize that as I was describing them. Certainly, Jesus' presence on earth was a blessing to humanity. If everyone lived like Jesus, it would be a wonderful world. The problem is, we don't. He was kind and merciful and generous as we should be. But that is as far as many people go with Jesus. Remember we said last week, a great question to ask your lost friends and neighbors and loved ones is, who do you believe Jesus to be? Now, there are a few people who say, I don't believe Jesus was at all. I don't believe he was a real historic figure. Those are very few. There's little doubt historically or otherwise that a person named Jesus lived in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. But the question is, who do you believe him to be? And some say he's a prophet, and some say he's a good man. Others say he's a good example. Some say he's a martyr or a misunderstood revolutionary. And the question each of us has to come to terms with is the one that Jesus asked Peter, but who do you say that I am? The correct answer is that he is the Christ, the Son of God, not just a good example. Now, we did owe a debt because of our sin, but it was not owed to Satan, but to God. We could never hope to pay the debt, so Christ paid it for us. Christ did defeat death and the grave through his resurrection. In fact, we saw in this room Wednesday night as we were studying 2 Timothy, and I'd really never seen this Greek phrase before. I was studying for that lesson. Is that what Christ did in the King James is he abolished death. Now God looking at that Greek phrase, kata ergon, ergo means work. He put death out of business. That's a great way to look at the atonement, isn't it? Now we know people still die. But as Paul says, where is your sting, death? Where is your victory? Jesus has put the sting of death out of business through his death, burial, and resurrection. God the Father was, in fact, pleased and satisfied with Christ's obedience. And the resurrection proves that is the case. That's what Paul labors, the point Paul labors to make in 1 Corinthians 15. If there's no resurrection, if there's no Easter, we are of all men and women most to be pitied. But there is a resurrection God the Father puts his stamp of approval on the finished work of his son through the resurrection. But truthfully, all of these views of the atonement spring from the same fountain. And that is the doctrine of substitutionary penal substitution. What happened at the cross was that the innocent died in place of the guilty. That is made clear in our text today from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Let's read it together. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. The title of the message today is why we still need the cross. I added the word still because I get the impression that many people living in our culture today believe that the message of the cross has outlived its usefulness. Maybe the idea of God sending his son into the world to die for the sins of those like us had an impact years ago 
on a former generation who was less sophisticated and educated than ours. Today's modern person certainly has no interest in a bloody cross. You say, Pastor, surely you're not implying that the modern person should take seriously his or her need of forgiveness. No, I'm not implying that at all. I'm saying it clearly and plainly. We still need the cross. And I want to draw three reasons from the text today why we still need the cross. Number one, because of the seriousness of sin. Secondly, because of the power of sin. And thirdly, because of the universality of sin. First, the seriousness of sin. Now there's evidence throughout the Bible that God takes sin seriously. It begins all the way back in the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden where he gave them a perfect environment, gave them one rule, one prohibition. Don't eat of this fruit that I've placed in the midst of the garden. They, of course, violated that prohibition. They sinned, and God was good to his word. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And Adam and Eve are dead. Sin caused death. Death has been passed to every subsequent generation. And we are born, every one of us, with a death sentence because of the seriousness of sin. God in his sovereignty and providence chose a special people through which to communicate his word and through which the Savior would ultimately come called the nation of Israel. And he gave them a covenant through Moses. And in that covenant, he showed forth the seriousness of sin. But even before that, when Adam and Eve sinned and God pronounced a curse and they found themselves naked and ashamed, the scripture says, God clothed them. Do you remember how he clothed them? He slew animals and took their skins and placed it upon Adam and Eve. And I take it that Adam and Eve were present when he slew those animals. And they saw that blood and they understood forever and always the high cost of sin. And in the old covenant that God established with Moses and gave them this sacrificial system, gave them the day of atonement. And every time Jewish people came together to sacrifice animals and saw that blood, they were reminded day by day, week by week, month by month, and year by year, the sinfulness of sin, the serious way in which God takes it. In fact, on the day of atonement, the priest would have to make a sacrifice of a bull to cover his own sin, and then he could make sacrifices for the sins of the people, and he would cleanse the altar, and he would cleanse the holy place by sprinkling the blood of one goat. But then there was one goat who lived, and he would come and he would place his hands on the head of that goat, symbolically imputing the sins of the nation of Israel to that goat. And that goat was led out into the wilderness. And we have that terminology in our English vernacular today. It's called a scapegoat. A scapegoat is someone who takes the place of another or who the blame is laid upon. And that's exactly what they would did. But everyone knew it was just a goat. It was a foreshadowing of the once for all sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be born in history, who would be the ultimate sacrifice for sins. So the entire concept of sin in our culture seems to be passe. That is, we don't talk about it. It's laughable. If we do talk about it, it's comedy. No one seems to take sin seriously anymore. And I think that, unfortunately, that view has infected the church. I think we have been desensitized by our exposure to it through the media but don't forget that God's attitude towards sin has never changed. We saw this in Romans chapter 1 as we studied starting in August. That God has a fixed disposition towards sin. He's angry against it all the time. 
His commandments have not changed. He says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. He says, be holy, for I am holy. The bottom line is this. People think God doesn't take sin seriously because almost no one they know takes sin seriously. But God is like no one we know. God is immutable. He has not and will not change. God is as holy now as he ever has been. He hates sin as much today as he ever has. So, because sin is as serious as ever from God's perspective, friends, we still need the cross. Men and women need a sin bearer. Just like the nation of Israel needed that goat symbolically to take their sins far away from the camp. We need Christ to take our sins as far as the east is from the west. Because the wages of sin is death. All of those sacrifices, foreshadowing of Christ. And now that Christ has come, we look back in hindsight towards the cross and Christ's imputation. So we still need a cross because of the seriousness of sin. Secondly, we need a cross because of the power of sin. Again, verse 24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. You probably recognize in that verse uh, allusion to the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 53, specifically verses 6 and 7. This is the suffering servant passage. And that's why it's frustrating as we think back of Peter's answer to Jesus about, no, Lord, I, I don't want you to go to the cross. We have a better plan. That's always been the plan. Peter and the others certainly studied Isaiah 53 growing up, and yet their eyes were blind. They couldn't understand. They had adopted the same view as many of their contemporaries that the Messiah was going to be a conquering hero, not a suffering servant. But listen to the description of the Messiah in Isaiah 53. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Yet... He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. You see, this chapter 2 in 1 Peter is set in the context of how to suffer injustice. Injustice and injustice are words we hear a lot about. But back up in 1 Peter chapter 2 to verse 21. And look at the full context of these verses that we read. Peter is writing to the first century church who are beginning to taste and feel the effects of following closely to Christ. What did Jesus say to them in Mark? If you're going to come after me, you have to take up your cross daily. You have to be willing to suffer and then die for the gospel. And now it's starting to happen in real time. And many of them feel like they're suffering unjustly. And they were. But Peter says this, verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose. You've been called to suffer injustice since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. I encourage you to go home and read about the trials of Jesus, his passion leading up to the cross event in preparation for Good Friday service 
And you'll see this is exactly the case. See, Jesus, in his omniscience, could have called legions of angels to his defense and wiped off all his enemies from the face of the earth. But that's not why he came. He came to seek and save the lost. And the way that he chose to save the lost is through his substitutionary death. This is the point that Peter is making to those in the first century who were starting to feel the heat. Don't be surprised when these things come against us because Jesus told us it would happen. Servant's not greater than his master. And all of these things came about. Now, as we think about suffering, we know that none of us relishes suffering. Jesus didn't. The night of his arrest, he went and prayed, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He was being reviled, yet he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. While looking towards the cross, he kept on without fail, entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So here is an example of how one of the views of the atonement that I mentioned earlier is valid. The moral influence theory that Christ set example for all of his followers how to suffer injustice in a dignified manner. But that is far from the main point of the cross. Jesus did set a good example of how to suffer unjustly, but it is set in the context of why he suffered, which is to set us free and regenerate us. That is to give us new life. Make us alive to righteousness. Now let's look at verse 24 again at the text and walk through it phrase by phrase. He himself, he is the only qualified one. That is, he wasn't the brains behind it and he took it uh, and put it upon another person. He didn't farm out the atonement. He himself, the only qualified one. No one else was capable. Why? Because no one else is sinless. No one else is spotless. Remember those animals that were sacrificed on the Day of Atonement had to be without spot. They had to be without any imperfection within them, showing forth the qualification of the Messiah who was to come. And in his body, the scripture says, he bore our sins. That is, he took them upon himself, literally, at the cross. The Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin. For us. Now, make sure you get that wording correctly. It does not say, nowhere in the scripture does it say, in fact, that Jesus became a sinner at the cross. But he bore the sins of all of those who would ever believe. He took them upon himself. We call that doctrine imputation. We saw this when we were studying the book of Romans. That is, God the Father counts all of the sins that all of us had ever committed and placed them upon Jesus... And then for all those who would put faith in Christ, his righteousness, which we have none of, is imputed to us. And therefore, we are said to be in Christ. This is the fulfillment of God the Father's command to be holy. You see, left our own devices, no man is and no man can be. And so we needed one to live a perfect life in our place and die a sinless death in our place. We needed a sin bearer to take our sins upon himself at the cross. This is what he did. He himself bore our sins on the cross. And you may have a translation that says on a tree. 
I noticed one of the songs that the choir was singing talked about him dying on a tree. And we know the cross, of course, was made of a wood, but it's more than just a clever way of saying a wooden cross. This is an allusion to the Old Testament. The book of Deuteronomy says, Cursed is any man who hangs upon the tree. Now, all executions, there's a degree of shame. There's a degree of grotesqueness. But in the Jewish mind, the most grotesque way a person could die is to hang on a tree, publicly embarrassed and ashamed. And this is the way in which God the Father and His sovereignty chose to remove the sins of the world through the shame of the cross. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That is the primary purpose of the atonement was not just to set a good example, but is to free us from the penalty and power of sin. As we think about our salvation, we often say we view it from three perspectives, don't we? The penalty of sin is death, hell, and the grave, and God's judgment is wrath, hell, in other words. And of course, that is what Christ came to do, is to save us and rescue us from the deserved wrath of God, the penalty of sin. Remember we said this is penal substitutionary, uh, substitutionary atonement. Penal means punishment. Punishment that we deserve, Christ took upon himself. But he also came to set us free from the power of sin. That is, once we are born again, we no longer are in bondage to our own iniquity. We now have the ability not to sin, Paul says in the book of Romans. But one day, bless God, in heaven, we're going to be free from the very presence of sin, aren't we? But until then, we still need the cross. Now, there's a third reason why we still need the cross. It's because of the universality of sin. We all need healing. Listen to what he says. And he himself wore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. All we like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah says. There is imagery of sheep throughout both testaments of our Bible. The nation of Israel is viewed as the flock of God and God is their shepherd. Probably one of the most famous passages in all the Bible. Your lost friends have memorized it. Psalm 23, David looks back on his life and the image that is evoked in his consciousness is sheep and shepherds. He was a shepherd boy and he looked back on his life and says, now wait a second, I'm a sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. And then he began to think about how the Lord had done shepherdly things in his life. He had led him to green pastures and beside green waters. That's the main role of a shepherd is to feed the sheep, but not only that, he has to protect the sheep. Sheep have enemies. Sheep have thieves that would like to steal them and eat them. They have predatory animals who want to destroy them and rip them apart. And so the shepherd protects the sheep with the rod and the staff. That's why David says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And so here Peter says, speaking to Christians, you were continually, this is before you were saved, straying like sheep. It's not as though we just have a faux pas every once in a while. 
that is the trajectory of our lives before we were saved, is rebellion. We are continually going astray. We are violating God's commandments as a way of life. And then he has this strong transitional word, but now. But now that you've been born again, you have been returned to the shepherd and guardians of your soul. And he's not just saying, oh, you, you, you wised up one day and came back home. That is, your very nature was rebellion. And it, take a, it took a miracle work in your heart and life. But now that that's been accomplished, you've now been returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. There's two words there that I love in the Greek. Shepherd, poimen, guardian, episkopos. These are two of the three words that the New Testament uses to describe the office of pastors. And we're having our pastoral retreat this week, so be in prayer for your pastors. And one of the things that we always do when we get together in these retreats is remind one another of what our role is, primarily to feed the sheep. And that's why when any of our pastors get in the pulpit, one of the first words out of their mouth is open your Bible. We're here to feast and be nurtured up by the word. But then there's times when we need to protect the sheep from false teachers and those who would seek to do them harm. But he uses a term here that's translated in my version as the guardian of your souls and maybe in yours as the bishop of your souls, the episcopos, the overseer, our manager of your souls. It's not just that Jesus died in your place and now has nothing to do with you for the rest of your life. He dies in your place he gives you the indwelling spirit of God who leads you to all truth and he guides you on the path that leads to heaven. Nothing can separate you from the love of God who is in Christ Jesus. But when I speak of the universality of sin, I'm speaking not just that everybody in this room is a sinner, and you are, it's that everyone who has ever existed except Jesus Christ is a sinner. I think we lose the significance when Isaiah says, all we like sheep keep going astray. And remember I said that in our culture, it seems like sin is not as sinful as it used to be in our grandparents' generation. But that's only because our perception is blinded. Sin is as sinful as it's ever been. There is no expiration date on human depravity. This is why Paul said so clearly in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, speaking of the universality of sin, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sons of Adam. And just like our fathers and our grandfathers and great-grandfathers and great-great-great-grandfathers before us, we still need the cross. Because we're like sheep that keep going astray. You know, it's not really a compliment that God refers to us as sheep. If you know anything about sheep, they are defenseless. Uh, we got invited over to a friend's home two or three weeks ago. And they've gone into the sheep raising business on their farm down south of Dallas. But um, they have uh, a breed of sheep that is known for multiple births. And so a ewe can only handle about two lambs and produce enough milk to sustain their life. And uh, some of these sheep are having three and four lambs. And so they have 11 lambs here in Keller in their backyard. And we got to go home and, and bottle feed those with them. And what experience that was. 
And as I was looking at these little lambs and looking at these sheep, I was reminded of many of the verses like the one we're studying today. What's a sheep like? Well, they're cute and cuddly, but they can't run fast. They get so woolly, they can't put one foot in front of the other, and they're easy pickings for predators, bears, and wolves. And even if they're caught, their, their teeth aren't very long or sharp, and their hooves don't have claws on them, and so they can't defend themselves very well. And, and really, the truth is, and here's the part that's not very flattering to us, sheep aren't very smart. I told the story many times when I was in high school, and in Future Farmers of America, and we showed our animals at the county fair. There was a group of young men who were gathering at the sheep barn every day, and I couldn't, none of us had sheep. We had pigs and cows and figured out the prettiest girl in the county had a sheep over there. And it drew a crowd every afternoon when she went to groom that, that sheep. And we noticed as we went over and were talking to her that she had him on a leash and she had it laid over the fence, but it wasn't tied up. And finally, one brave young man asked her what we were all thinking. Why, why don't you tie your sheep up? She says, oh, don't worry about him. He thinks he's tied up. He'll stay there all day. <laughs> so we sheep are not that smart. That's why we, we need a savior, don't we? We not only need a savior and a sin bearer, we need a protector. We need a shepherd of our souls. We need a episcopos, one who would guard us and protect us. And the Lord is that, isn't he? In fact, in describing himself in John chapter 10, he said, I am the good, what? Shepherd. I'm not a hired hand. I'm not like one of these guys you pay $8 an hour and tell him to watch the sheep and he's on his phone playing a video game or texting his girlfriend. And when the predatory animal comes, he takes to his heels and abandons the sheep. I'm not like that. In fact, he says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And See, what they would do is uh, they would uh, take the sheep out in the early morning up into the highlands and they would graze back down to the lowlands and they would have a, a sheepfold, which was often a cave. And it was a narrow entrance. And at night, he would put the sheep in the cave and he would literally lay down in front of it. He was the gate himself. And if an enemy came, he had to go through the shepherd to get to the sheep. No greater love has any man than he would lay down his life for the sheep. And friends, that is not just a metaphor. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did for everyone who would believe. He bore our sin. He took them to the cross. He died in our place. And we call that, you can call it anything you want, but I think one of the great description of that is penal, punishment, substitutionary. He took our place, atonement, reconciliation of ourselves to a holy God. This is what Easter is all about. This is what Palm Sunday is all about. Yes, it's wonderful to decorate and send cards and have a warm fuzzy at springtime every year. But really what Easter should remind us is that we still need the cross our culture needs the cross. And it's because of a number of things. We need the cross because of the seriousness of sin. It hasn't changed. God has not changed and therefore his attitude towards sin will never change. Sin is just as heinous to God as it ever has been. We need a cross. Our culture needs a cross because of the power of sin. We see it every day. 
men and women who are enslaved to their own sin. They cannot not sin. The trajectory of their life is sin after sin after sin. And you know what Paul said about that, writing to Christians? And such were some of you. Such were all of us. Before we were born again, we were enslaved to our own passions. We were controlled by our slave master, our own sin nature. And that has not changed. That is true of every woman, man, boy, and girl who knows not the Lord Jesus. And we still need a cross today because of the universality of sin. You can't be educated out of your need of the cross. Your net worth can't get so high that you have no longer a need of the cross. A culture can't become so technologically astute and savvy and sophisticated that we no longer have a need of the cross. Dear friends, we still need the cross. And the cross is available for all who would believe. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And implied in that is what the son did. He lived a perfect life. He died a literal bodily death as our substitute on the cross. And three days later, he rose again, showing that God the Father was satisfied with God the Son. What about you? What are you trusting in for your salvation? There's two great questions you have to come to terms with in your life. One we saw last week. Who do you believe Jesus to be? He claims to be God in the flesh. He claims to have a right over your soul. And then the question you have to come to terms with is, do you believe it? What are you trusting in, in other words, for your salvation? If you're trusting in anything other than the finished work of Jesus Christ, you've missed it. There's a way to heaven, but there's only one way to heaven. Jesus has made that way. He took the sin debt that you owed, took it upon himself at the cross. And the Bible says the only way to appropriate that gift of salvation is by faith, not by works. But Paul says in Ephesians, salvation is by grace. It is a gift appropriated through faith. Believe on Jesus. This is what John 3.16 means. For God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that whoever would believe in him, put their faith and trust completely in him, not in themselves, would not perish. They would escape the penalty of sin, God's wrath. It would also escape the power of sin in this life. And one day, bless God, we will escape the presence of sin in glory. We still need the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. Father, we live in a culture that laughs at sin, mocks it, ridicules it, calls us fools who change our lifestyle to conform to the image of Christ. They tell us that this world is all there is, so you better eat, drink, and be merry while you can. They think it strange that we spend our weeks and days and weekends at church with other Christians, singing and reading the Word and ministering to one another. And yet, Lord, uh, we know we still need the cross. Our culture needs it, our nation needs it, our world needs it. It's not out of date. We've not outgrown our need of a Savior. In fact, as I look at the world, it seems like we need a Savior more than ever. So I pray, Father, if there's a person in this room who knows you not, 
that they'd run to Jesus, that they'd despair of anything within themselves that they perceived to be worthy of heaven. They'd cast it aside as Paul declared his own righteousness, filthy rags, and that they'd trust Jesus alone, his sinless life, his vicarious substitutionary death and his glorious resurrection. Father, I thank you that many in this room have been walking with Jesus, the guardian of our souls for many years. And Father, as we're tempted to give up and to grow weary, help us to remember that he's prepared for us a home eternally in heaven. Encourage some heart here today that needs to hear that. Father, I pray if there's anyone that needs to make a public profession of faith today, that today would be the day that they'd start on a new road and a new life serving you. Lord, we would rejoice with them today. Glorify yourself in this place today is our prayer. We pray it all in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.